Father, we recognize your sovereignty. We realize we live in a world of rapid change. We live in a world where basically God is not, not acknowledged by the vast majority. And yet, Father, you have revealed yourself through Jesus Christ and through the Word. And we're so grateful that the light has dawned upon us and we have come to an understanding of the truth. And Father, we pray that that truth will be very real to us today as we study further from the book of Genesis. We're just grateful for the life of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and the many uh, great patriarchs whose lives are held up as an example. And we recognize, Lord, that in every one of their lives there were strengths and there were weaknesses, and yet through, through all of the events which transpired, you proved yourself strong and faithful. And so to you we commit ourselves today and pray that the Word of God will be uh, in our hearts that reservoir of strength, of peace, of truth, of direction. We commit this hour to you in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 23, reading at verse 10. 23, reading at verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the land. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver? What is that between you, me and you? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. As we noted last week, as we began this chapter, Abraham uh, suffered the loss of Sarah. She died, and Abraham is in the process of finding a place to bury his beloved wife. And of course, he was aware, living in that uh, particular region of Hebron, he was aware of the existence of the cave of Machpelah, now, as I mentioned to you last time, the name Machpelah means double. So apparently there were two caverns inside this particular cave. The reason we have to say apparently is that, as I mentioned to you also last time, you're not allowed to go into the cave of Machpelah. It sits under a great uh, mosque. Uh, it wasn't originally a mosque. The building was built by Herod. But uh, that's basically what it is today and the sanctuary is sacred to three, three different religions today, but you're not allowed to go in underneath. Nobody is allowed to go in underneath. He is here bargaining for or looking for the opportunity to purchase the cave of Machpelah from Ephron. And we notice that they are sitting probably in a circle possibly on rugs or blankets outside the city gate. And as you've already noted through your studies, the city gate was a place where business was always transacted in the ancient world, in the ancient Near Eastern world anyway. Uh, you hear of the judges sitting in the city gate, the elders sitting in the city gate. Uh, sort of like that was the courthouse, the, the, the uh, you know, the, what, what do you call it? The, Mayor's Mansion, uh, City Hall, yes, uh, all these different things were all kind of right there. And people were passing back and forth, and everything was done in the open so that there would be many ears to hear and to validate the transaction that went on. Now, this offer on the part of Ephron needs to be noted as purely a formality. He does not expect Abraham to say, oh, you're giving it to me? Well, thanks a lot. I'd really be glad to receive it from you. He does not expect him to do that. It's part of uh, Near Eastern uh, standard practice. It's the custom of that part of the world. And as a result, uh, he's doing it 
But if Abraham were to say, hey, thanks, I'll just uh, take you up in that offer, his name would have been uh, mud for the rest of his life in that part of the world. Now, if he'd been a real poverty-stricken person, the offer would not have been made <laughs> because such a person might have, uh, have taken it up. He wouldn't have been there in the first place uh, talking about a deal for, a land, for the land. As expected, Abraham uh, offered to pay and planned on paying the full price for the land. But Ephron's response there, as we read it, is, is very, very interesting. He sort of matter-of-factly mentions the value of the land and then says, but, but what's 400 shekels between me and you? You know, between you and me. 400 shekels, ah, it's nothing. Why, why bother with this amount? The question is, why does he even mention the amount <laughs> that the land's worth? if he were not intending for Abraham to pay that particular price. The implication, of course, is that the 400 shekels of silver is too petty an amount for men of their wealth and stature to be concerned about. Just take the land. But if you insist on paying for it, fine. But really, I'm willing to give it to you. Ha! Huh. Not really. <clears throat> In the Zondervan Encyclopedia, a man by the name of H.D. Stiggers gives interesting insight here. He says, the process of negotiation was perfect etiquette and custom, which still prevails in many Arab communities. But in Abraham's case, the price finally paid was deliberately exorbitant. The high price was prompted by the aversion of the native Hittites to have a non-Hittite acquire proprietary, hence citizenship, rights in their midst. They could hardly deny the privilege to Abraham since he was a prince of God, but sought to dissuade him by, excess, by the excessive high price asked. Abraham was not so easily put off, and going on the strength of God's promises that he should inherit the land, he took the first step to this end as a token of his belief in God's promises and unhesitatingly paid the price demanded. So this man is indicating that the price was a very, very high price that was being asked for the land. What does Abraham do? Well, the passage tells us that he weighs out the silver in the unit of measure and in the quality that was accepted standard in those days. Now, what, is this, what form is this silver in? Well, we can't know for sure, but the chances are that this silver was in some form, uh, either a nugget form, possibly a granular form, or even possibly in small ingot form. These various uh, forms of silver have been found by archaeologists. The silver was not in coin form. And we've talked about this, I think, a little bit before. Uh, the coin was a much later invention. To us, the coin seems to be a very common thing all around the world. All countries, well, not all countries, but most countries have coins. I remember being in uh, Brazil many, many years ago when they had no coins. They had no coins because the paper money was hardly worth anything. <laughs> they could hardly afford to coin, make coins because that would be far more costly. <laughs> costly. <laughs> far more costly than the coins were worth. Uh, unless you want to make a little bitty coin and make it worth, you know, 5,000 of your units of uh, money. Uh, that would be about the only way to make it reasonable, uh, it would seem. The, the coin was invented, the, the Greeks credit the uh, Lydians, who lived in eastern, western Asia Minor uh, in the 7th century BC, credit them with making the first coins, coming up with the idea and minting the very first coins. And so at this particular time, the coin does not exist. Now the shekel was a unit of weight, and as best as they're able to determine today, the shekel of Abraham's day probably weighed approximately 40% of an ounce. By today's standards, therefore, 400 shekels of silver would come out to a, be about $1,500. $1,500 in bullion value of silver. Obviously, if it were in some kind of monetary form, it probably would have a little bit higher uh, value than that. 
Now that seems pretty cheap, doesn't it, to buy what was probably several acres of land, including a cave and, and the whole works. But we must note a couple of things here. First of all, $1,500 in our society buys a whole lot less than 400 shekels bought in their society in that day. Think about it. What can you get with $1,500 today? Let's say you wanted to buy a car. What would you get with $1,500? Well, it might move and it might not. <laughs> $1,500 would not even be a decent down payment on a new car today, but with, with 400 shekels, you could buy a whole herd of camels in that particular day. So uh, obviously, the relative values are all out of sync with the direct relationship of that amount of silver to what it's worth today. Plus, you have to remember that land values were a whole lot lower in those days than they are in our society. Oh, you can still buy an acre of land someplace in this country for $1,500, probably even for less. Wouldn't be worth much, probably, obviously. But uh, this piece of property probably was many acres, including the cave and so forth. So we just have to to, to put our minds in a different category when we're thinking about uh, values. It was a lot of money in that day to pay for this small piece of land. Verse 17, so Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. The constant mention of this being done at the gate of the city and in the hearing of those who passed uh, was the uh, statement referring to the fact that this was formally and legally done as a transaction. They didn't have a nice you know, piece of paper with all these pages and a map of the territory and all this kind of stuff with all these signatures and a title company, all of this. In those days, basically, it was just a matter of doing it orally in front of other people who were witnesses, and probably there was not any document of any sort associated with the transaction. You have to remember, we're talking about probably the uh, 20th century BC, a better part of 4,000 years ago, and about the only surviving writings that, we, that, that come to us from that ancient period, most of them are on clay tablets. And even though there are property documents on clay tablets, they don't seem to be that widespread and mostly limited to just certain societies, mostly those of Mesopotamia. And so we're probably talking about purely illegal, uh, I mean an oral transaction going on here where everybody acknowledges, yes, this has taken place, and nobody could reverse it because there were so many witnesses to what had transpired at this particular point. So Abraham now actually possesses a piece of the land for the first time. He had lived in the land as a sojourner, as an alien, as a Bedouin moving from place to place without a single square inch of the land of Canaan that literally physically belonged to him. But now he actually possesses a few acres of Canaan. There is no evidence to indicate that Isaac or Jacob had any more land uh, that they acquired of Canaan than this particular piece, except for a small piece of property that Jacob later bought from Hamor up near Shechem about 150 years later. Other than that, before they went into Egypt, this is about all that was owned by the one to whom the whole land had been promised and his descendants before they went into the land of Egypt. The Israelites would finally receive the land of Canaan as their inheritance after 400 years of trial and tribulation in Egypt. 400 years they would live in a foreign land as aliens, total aliens, 
even to the point of becoming slaves. And then, of course, they would leave, as, as we all remember, in a 40-year exodus that would be a very trying time, too, before they would be able to stand on the east shore of, of the uh, Jordan River and look across into the Promised Land. And then, of course, you know, Moses was not even allowed to lead them into the land. But a new leader was raised up, one Joshua, and it would be under Joshua that they would finally cross that river in a mighty miracle as God dried up the river, and they marched across into the land. And after four and a half centuries, five centuries, whatever it, it turned out to be, the promised land finally became the possessed. I think what really comes to us out of this, or what should come to us out of this whole story, is that this really is sort of a picture of our lives. When you and I obey the call of God and come out of Egypt, as it were, that is when we become born again, and we depart, hopefully, from the ways of the world to, to walk in the ways of God, we have also a promised land. God has promised to you and to me a land. And really, we look forward to that land, sometimes even more than other times, right? Seems like the older we get, the more we look forward to that land. I suppose partly because we really get tired <laughs> of the pressures that we face and the difficulties of this life. And of course, we read in Revelation just a little introduction to what that land will be like in uh, Revelation 21 and 22, but let me just read a couple of verses from 21 where that land is introduced. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You remember we noted how Paul in Galatians drew the parallel between uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael and Sarah and her son Isaac, and how the one represented the earthly Jerusalem, that is Hagar, and the other represented the heavenly Jerusalem, that is Sarah. And so although they did not have a, a specific vision probably, as, as John had here, they were still looking for that city that God had promised to them. And through the prophet John, the apostle John, he's given to us a much more clear picture, I guess you could say, of, of that city, of that true promised land. And so that would be their goal. It is our goal. For you and for me, it still remains the promised land. Yes, we are the children of God, just as the Israelites were the children of God, but they didn't really possess the promised land until they crossed Jordan, right? And we, uh, we sing some songs, and there are some spirituals about crossing chilly Jordan, you know? And uh, that's, of course, another phrase for, for death, or Im implies death. But for you and for me, we have to go through an exodus, and that's what this life is all about once we become born again. It's, 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 the, uh, it's our exodus as we are leaving Egypt and as we are headed for the promised land. And from the moment of our new birth until our death, uh, we are on that exodus. And we do not enter that promised land as long as we are still walking in this flesh. And we're not on the exodus, of course, until we're born again because that's the moment we leave Egypt. That could be our Red Sea crossing or whatever you want to call it. The, the exodus for us is a proving ground. It's the place where God works in us to make us more into the image of Christ. And as a result, we face fiery trials and tribulations and persecutions. And Jesus promised us that. Now, we're always talking about every promise in the book is mine. Uh, and, and that's fine. But we sometimes don't look at the promises that aren't quite so thrilling, you know. Like, in this life, you will have tribulation. You know, oh, well, thank you, Lord. Appreciate that promise. Uh, we're always thanking him for the nice promises or what we consider to be physically the nice promises. 
But actually, these are the promises that often make us the strongest and prepare us better for God's, for God's kingdom. We will ultimately possess the land. But Peter, good old Peter, Peter himself faced a lot of persecution, and so he writes quite a bit about it. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he writes uh, some words that have often been spoken in messages and so forth. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering, sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. That's really learning the true essence of what Christianity is all about. We hear so much today, or we have, I don't know if it's being quite so loudly proclaimed today. Uh, it is in certain circles. But you hear so much about health and wealth, that if you're a true believer, you'll be healthy, and if you're a true believer, you'll be wealthy. And life will be, uh, you know, life is intended by the Lord to be happy and joyful and peaceful and without trial and tribulation and without big problems. Well, that seems to be a very strange interpretation of what the Scripture illustrates as happened to various individuals who are believers down through history and what my experience has been, and I know in most of your cases what your experience has been. But the key is there in verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Sometimes when we get hit by trials and tribulations, we moan and groan. God understands. He doesn't smack us around because we moan and groan. But he wants us to learn how to rejoice in the midst of it all. Because these are but momentary light afflictions, Paul tells us, and that they don't even compare to the eternal weight of glory that we will yet see. That promised land which will one day become our possessed land is so wonderful compared to what we face now that we should just consider our trials to be mosquito bites uh, compare in comparison to what we will receive. But that's easier to say when you're not going through a fiery trial than it is when you are going through a fiery trial. Uh, and it, all, it doesn't always help to just come up and hit somebody over the head with the scripture if they're kind of moaning and groaning through the midst of a trial. But it does help to pray for them and ask God to come alongside that we might be able to see uh, the whole picture as God sees it. You know, you think about the children of Israel in the Exodus. As they were going 40 years through the wilderness, um, God could see ahead. And, and God knew that they would inherit the wonderful land of Canaan, with, which was flowing with milk and honey. And they were going to receive grain fields already planted, olive uh, orchards already producing fruit, vineyards already producing food, fruit. They were going to have a turnkey country, if you will. Just walk in and take over. And it would all be there. Yet they couldn't see that. It really began to fade in front of their eyes as they faced the trials of the desert and as they wandered around in the Sinai. Now, if you've never seen the Sinai, it might be hard to, to understand what this was like. Sinai is not the Garden of Eden. The Sinai is a pretty awful place. Uh, much of the Sinai is, is just sheer desert, <coughs> rocky desert. And you can go for long distances between uh, water holes uh, or between any major types of vegetation. And it's, it's, it's pretty sparse and stark out there. And even though God was supplying them with manna every day and their shoes weren't wearing out and their clothes weren't wearing out, they were getting really psychologically inured to the whole thing. And they didn't like it after a while. And it's kind of interesting, you remember, they were willing to exchange their freedom for the leeks, the garlics, and the fish of Egypt. They said, oh, let's pick up a leader and have him lead us back uh, to Egypt. We'd rather be in slavery and have 
that which satisfies the appetites of the flesh than this freedom and this manna that we eat every day. Wandering around in this hot, dry desert, having to depend on God. How terrible. And this was a real problem they faced. And you know, if we were in their sandals, I would say we wouldn't react any differently than they did. Because they are an expression of human nature. And people do not change. You know, one of the greatest proofs to me that uh, mankind is not evolving and becoming better and better uh, every year is the fact that he is no different today in the way he reacts to trials and tribulations and the problems of life than he has been ever in history that we have any record of. Uh, we're just as good at killing people and, and uh, maiming and butchering as ever and reacting in, in violent ways. In fact, probably even more so. Now, for you and for me, it should be different. We are on the exodus. And we're facing barren mountains sometimes, sometimes long distances between wells, between springs. Sometimes God's daily provision gets a little old for us and we want something new and exciting. We want something different. And sometimes we look at the world around us and we say, whoa, the leeks and the garlics look pretty good to us, especially if we're in a fleshly mode of thinking at the time. The way we handle the difficulties of our exodus is either going to attract or repel other people to want to join the exodus. Others will or will not want to leave Egypt as they look at you and as they look at me, as they look at the church, and they say, is the church for real or is the church fraudulent? And the more and more you read in the newspaper of somebody who kills somebody because this guy molested uh, uh, this woman's daughter at a church camp, you, you, you begin to wonder what kind of a church we have. And some guy who kills a doctor uh, in the name of God. You know, is this really the way Jesus told us to live? Does this fit with the Beatitudes? Does this fit with the Sermon on the Mount? Our journey, I think, sometimes is hard. And the terrain is sometimes rugged. And sometimes our fellow uh, sojourners are few. And sometimes we wonder about our fellow sojourners. And sometimes our fellow sojourners seem to stab us in the back or kind of send us down a wrong trail away from the water that may be ahead. Sometimes our enemies seem to be very numerous as we are on the exodus. But what the Lord is saying throughout Scripture is that the promised land is worth all the trials, all the tribulations, all the hardship, all the times we get betrayed by those who are supposed to be our friends or our compatriots along the way. It's worth it all, and sometimes it may seem like we're traveling the route alone, but we are not. As we become stronger in the Lord, it's our responsibility to try to help stay others on the course. And I think that's really the essence of, of course, much of the New Testament, I'd like to read a few verses from Galatians chapter 6 relative to this concept because here we have a passage that I think relates directly to our, quote, exodus, to our journey. Verse 1, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Very applicable to the concept of a journey to this exodus that we are on from the Egypt that we have left, the world from which we have been saved, to the promised land that we have not yet acquired, we're to restore one another along the route. We're to be humble, recognizing that we could fall into the same trap that our fellow traveler has fallen in, that we are not immune to the same temptations and trials that others have suffered. We're admonished here to bear one another's burdens, and yet at the same time we're told that each one is to bear his own load. In other words, we are to reach out to one another and to minister to one another, but no one is supposed to just throw it all on everybody else and just flop down and let someone else carry him when he can carry himself. There, there, there's a responsibility that we have to carry our own load, to do what God has required us to do, and yet to allow others to help us along the way and in turn to help others along the way. And to realize that everything we do produces an end product. Whatsoever we sow, we reap. If we, reap the thing, if we sow the things of God, we reap eternal life. If we sow the other, we reap corruption. And an awful lot of corruption is found in the Exodus. Notice as you read the story of the Exodus how many times the Israelites faced the judgment of God. How many of them died in the wilderness suddenly because they chose to make a golden image of a calf or some other such thing. And of course we know that every one of them died in the wilderness except two. Two alone survived the entire wilderness exodus experience. That, of course, was Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else died, even Moses. We're not to lose heart. It's easy to do, isn't it? It seems like we live in a country now where, where evil is getting the upper hand from the very top on down. And decisions are being made not based on the morality of Scripture or even good business ethics, made on principles that seem to be, seem to be totally godless and demonic. But we are not to lose heart. We're not to grow weary. That doesn't mean we don't get tired along the way. It just means we don't get so weary we just throw the whole thing over and say, forget it, it's not worth it. And you'll notice in the last verse, the admonition there is to do good to all men, but specifically to which people? Your fellow sojourners, others of the household of faith. And that's, you know, that's an important teaching, and you'll find it other places in the Scripture too that we are to show special love and special outreach to the men and women of the faith. Not to neglect the men and women of the world in terms of, of being good, and being the light and the salt and, and spreading the gospel of truth, but our primary purpose, for example, let's just say any giving we do in and above uh, our tithe, let's say, to the church. <laughs> Uh, it should not primarily be to the March of Dimes or the Cancer Society or something else as much as it should be towards things like World Relief or organizations that are reaching out to minister to the physical needs with a spiritual purpose. This should be more emphasis than the other because we're to, as much as possible, reach out to those of the household of faith. Right, let's move into the 24th chapter of Genesis, which is a good deal longer than the 23rd chapter. But a lot of exciting things happen here in the 24th chapter. In fact, one of the most marvelous prayers and answers to prayers uh, in Scripture is recorded in this particular chapter. Let's read verses 1 through 9. <laughs> Now, you always have to bear in mind that uh, Scripture makes some pretty funny statements sometimes, or at least they seem funny to us. 
And we're going to read this first verse, and it says, Abraham was very old and advanced in years. And of course, we get this feeling that he probably, you know, was walking around with a stick and bent over like this, you know, and a big white beard hanging on the ground and hardly able to move. And yet to realize he's yet to father several children. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's all relative here. Uh, he's not doing any pole vaulting anymore, and he's probably, you know, not doing the decathlon, but uh, he's not yet in the grave either. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please pay, uh, place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And Abraham said to him, Beware lest you take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him, concerning this matter. Abraham, at this point, is probably approximately 140 years old, possibly even a little older than that. Something really wonderful is uh, alluded to in the first part of uh, this passage, in fact, in the last part of the first verse. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in a few ways, some ways, says in every way. The Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. God's blessing upon Abraham was very evident. We have noted these blessings, and let me just recount them. First of all, the Scripture tells us that he was considered by his pagan heathen neighbors to be a mighty prince. And we noted that the literal meaning of the word there was prince of God. Somehow they recognized that he was specially favored by the divinity. Whoever that divinity was, and he was in, in, to a great measure a testimony of the reality of that God. Secondly, he had received a promise of a land. He, he, the promised land was to be given to him. God had not done this for any other person. God had not promised to anybody before Abraham that a certain land would belong to him and to his descendants as a perpetual home. This, of course, we re recognize the promise was made with certain conditions, and that is it will be the perpetual home for you and your descendants so long as you obey me. And when you disobey, then another thing will take place. Thirdly, God had promised to raise up a mighty nation from Abraham, a great nation that would be raised up through Isaac and through Jacob and through Joseph and the other patriarchs, and that ultimately through this mighty nation, the whole world would be blessed. And, and we already have noted that that would be, of course, in the coming of Messiah. Then God had blessed him with an eternal hope there are many who say, as they study through the Old Testament, that there's no clear picture in the Old Testament of heaven. Well, I don't really think that's so. In my studies, I, I get a strong feeling of a sense of, of looking forward to eternity. They may not have had a picture that's as clear as you read in the book of Revelation, but they had an understanding. And even though David says, oh, well, how in the world are we going to praise you from the grave? We have to realize that as he writes those kind of statements like that, he's, he's writing them in the, in the midst of trials and tribulations and problems, and, and, and he's writing them from a human perspective. 
Because there are other things that David says that indicate that he understood that there was a better life yet to come than would be experienced in this life. Now, how is it that Abraham had a sense of a city whose builder and maker was God, which Hebrews tells us he and Sarah were looking forward to? Where does the author of Hebrews get this? You don't get it specifically stated here. But we must, I suppose, interpret that Abraham in his many encounters with God and in, in the uh, theophanies and the word that he received from the Lord, that somehow God indicated to him that there was yet a better city to which he would graduate one day. And he was therefore looking for that city, what we see as the New Jerusalem. And then lastly... He was blessed in that he was the friend of God. In spite of all his failures, in spite of his lies and the things which he did, he was called a friend of God. The, the chronicler makes that point very clear. Let me just for a moment here turn to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and read in verse 7. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, thy friend forever. Now, as we look down through that list, and we see that Abraham was a mighty prince, that Abraham had a promised land, that Abraham was going to be raised up as a mighty nation, that his descendants would become a mighty nation. He had an eternal hope that he was a friend of God. As we read down through that list, we might feel intimidated by Abraham. We might say, you know, Abraham really had it better than we have it because he literally stood toe-to-toe -to, -toe to God. I mean, he spoke with the angel of the Lord. He walked with the angel of the Lord. He heard the word of God directly in his ears audibly. But we've never done that. We, we read the Bible, and that's God speaking to us. And we hear the sermon. And, you know, this, and we have to try to pick and choose what's God's word for us. I think we need to recognize that we have the same status Abraham had. We are in no way less blessed than he. You and I are today mighty princes. We are the sons and daughters of God. The scripture in Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We also have a promised land, right? What did Jesus say to us? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We too are a mighty nation. We're a part of the church with the capital C, the church of scripture, not the institution called by some denominational name necessarily. And the scripture tells us that that, that that is a mighty nation and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's never been a physical nation on this earth that the gates of hell have not prevailed against. Every great civilization and kingdom throughout history has risen and collapsed. Even mighty Rome and mighty... Uh, the mighty Constantinople Empire and whatever you want to look at, the mighty kingdoms of ancient India and ancient China, they've all collapsed in ruins. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom that we are a part of. We too have an eternal hope, right? We have a city to which we are headed also, the new Jerusalem which we're told is the city coming down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband. We have a great eternal hope. And we are also the friends of God. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Paul recorded for us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, which means we are in the will along with him. And what he inherits, we inherit. It's exciting when you think about that. In summary, in Galatians 3.9, we read this. So then, 
Those who are, who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. We stand side by side with Abraham. He's not up here and we down here. We're side by side with Abraham. All the blessings he had, we have. And we need not feel intimidated or inferior in any way because we are blessed with Abraham the believer. I think it's really important to note that in the midst of all his blessings, Abraham was not blinded to the realities of the flesh. He wasn't off dreaming of this city he was going to go to someday and forgetting what was going on around him. He had concern for his son Isaac. You notice it doesn't say he had much concern for Ishmael. Ishmael was gone. And Ishmael was already becoming an, a nation as God allowed this to transpire out in the Sinai wilderness. But he was concerned for Isaac. Isaac was nearly 40 years old and he was not married and had no prospects of being married. And I think Abraham probably didn't think up this whole thing all by himself. I think Isaac came to him and said, Dad, you know, I've been helping you raise these animals and kind of watch over your household. But I've been thinking, <laughs> I'd like a lady, you know, I'd, I'd like a girl. <laughs> I want to be married. After all, you were married by the time you were my age. Well, I don't know if he really said that. That's an argument from silence, of course. <laughs> but that could easily have triggered Abraham into thinking and in, into doing what we read about in this particular passage. Now, we must remember that, first of all, the society in which Abraham and Isaac lived was a patriarchal society. But, in spite of the fact that, was, that it was a patriarchal society, wives were very important and influential, particularly on their own family. And therefore, when it comes to picking a wife for Isaac, it wasn't sort of like Russian roulette, you know, spin the wheel and upon whichever lady's name it falls, that's your wife. Or just kind of go out to the nearest uh, town and look around and see if you could find one. No, it wasn't to be that kind of approach at all. Abraham wanted a wife for Isaac who would pull in the same direction Isaac was headed, not in a different direction. Why did God warn the, the, the uh, nation of Israel not for its kings not to multiply wives? Well, for the very reason that we see to have been lived out in the life of Solomon. We're told that Solomon's wives turned his heart away from God unto idols. It was a patriarchal society, yes but the men could still be profoundly influenced by the women, by the ladies of the land. And as Solomon, as great and wise and wealthy and powerful as he was, why did he turn his eyes away from God? It says, not because of his money, not because of his power, not because of his army, but because of his wives. Abraham was, was, was blessed. He had had a wonderful wife to be his companion all those many years, the hundred or more years that they were married. And he wanted one such as Sarah for his wife. And so it was going to be very, very important how this wife was picked. I think it's very important for us to recognize that a union of faith is absolutely essential in a marriage, a union of faith. That is the number one priority. The number one priority cannot be the physical attributes of the pr prospective mate, cannot be the wealth or the brilliance or the family or anything else. The number one uh, point, the number one perspective has got to be the spiritual commitment of that person. Because if it's not the same, if the goals are not the same, it's going to be loggerheads probably for the entire marriage. And that spiritual commitment 
is, of course, what God emphasized as being crucial. We'll have to end with this, but let me read from Matthew 19, where Jesus is quoting from Genesis. Matthew 19, verse 4, that the Pharisees are talking to him about divorce. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then Paul builds on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has an, a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This passage is so clear and so powerful that you have to truly, a person who, who turns his or her back on this and chooses to to become involved in a marriage relationship with a person uh, not of the faith doesn't understand what this is really saying. You'll notice it says at the end of verse 15, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now that doesn't sound near as bad as the first phrases, but notice it comes at the end of them. It's, and, and what it's saying is a believer and an unbeliever have no more in common than Christ and Satan himself that there's no more relationship than light with darkness or righteousness with lawlessness. You know, how many people would actually purposely go out and marry the devil? I mean, I'd say, but oh, he's so wonderful. You know, and he loves me or she loves me. Or, you know, we, we just get caught up in our emotions and are blinded to the fact that it's, it's, it's literally hell we're headed into. And Christ warns us very, very powerfully. And, and you and I need to be sure <laughs> that we do all we can to pray for our children and our grandchildren and whatever else, whoever else uh, that's within our sphere of influence, that they understand that this is, an ex this is the most serious matter of all. It's much more serious than where you get your job or where you go to school or anything else. Because this is a supposed to be a lifelong thing. And it can be literally hell. And, and Abraham understood this. And if his son married a Canaanite, you know, it'd be down the tubes. He didn't even want him to take his son back to Mesopotamia because he might like it there and want to stay. And so Abraham is looking out for, on behalf of Isaac and wanting the very best for him. Well, we'll have to pursue that further next time.